It's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. With your host, Jamie Dew. Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna. And featuring Matt Ardill. And now, Curator of the Hall. Jamie Dew. All right. Thank you so much, Doug Nance. It is great to be back here at home in the SNL Hall of Fame for the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Here we are uh, rounding out episode five already. We're a quarter of the way through season four, if you can believe it. Uh, we've got a great one this week, but before hey, you, you with the dirty feet over there, wipe them. You know what I'm saying? Just wipe them. Don't make me yell. The SNL Hall of Fame podcast is a weekly affair where each episode we take a deep dive into the career of a former cast member, host, musical guest, or writer and add them to the ballot for your consideration. Once the nominees have been announced, we turn to you, the listener, to vote for the most deserving and help determine who will be enshrined for perpetuity in the hall. That's how we play the game here, folks. It's really quite easy. We nominate them. You come on and talk about them. And then you get to vote for them. And we will pick the fourth class of the SNL Hall of Fame. This week, we are joined by a returning Jeremy Dove, who joined us last year for the first time. And we really enjoyed uh, the conversation we had with Jeremy. So we invited him back. And he will be talking about writer Adam McKay. So that's real exciting. And I'm looking forward to hearing Jeremy's take on Adam McKay in a conversation with Thomas. But before we get to that, like we do every week, we've got to walk down the hall here. And uh, you see where those two walls meet perpendicular? That's a corner. And my friend standing over there, that's Matt. And for about 60 seconds... He's going to give us some minutia in that corner because, ladies and gentlemen, that is Matt's minutia minute corner. So let's get to him. Matt. Hello. How's it going? I'm doing great. I'm going great. You doing great yourself? You know it. I'm here. Awesome. You know, when I'm here in the hall, I'm at my best. Always a great time. Always a great time. Talk to us about Adam McKay. Adam is another tall guy uh, like Will. He is six foot five. Uh, wow. Born April seventeenth, nineteen sixty-eight. Uh, he was born in Philadelphia. Uh, he has a lot of credits: uh, ninety-five producer credits, forty-two writer credits, twenty-seven director credits, and fifteen acting credits. Wow. Um, yeah, so a lot. Uh, he is a Second City alumnus. He performed with uh, Scott Adist, uh, who you probably know from Thirty Rock. But he also wrote on a lot of crazy stuff um, like Mary Shelley's Frankenhole and Moral Oral, uh, both wild cartoons. So he he's had so uh, so Adam has had some amazing collaborators. Uh, they were in a, the sketch Gump, uh, which is included in the all time best sketches of Second City that comes with the Second City book, uh, oh. which I have um, you now. Adam also studied under Del Close at uh, the Improv Olympics, 
and was a founding member of the UCB. Um, he is Did not know that. Yeah, yeah. So he is one of that that early group um, that, that that helped broaden the the improv uh, options for us. Um, now he is married to to Shira Piven, an equally talented theater and film director, producer, actress, who is the sister to Jeremy Piven. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're they have a daughter um, named Pearl, uh, who is the landlord in the landlord sketch uh, that uh, that helped uh, Funny or Die blow up, uh, and she's also the baby in Good Cop, Baby Cop, uh, which if you haven't seen them, are two of the funniest sketches ever on Funny or Die. Like, yeah, yeah, they, they came out of the gate strong. <laughs> they sure did. Um, he co-founded Gary Sanchez Productions with Will Ferrell. Um, when developing the other guys, he originally thought to call the movie the B Team, a riff on the A Team, which is being filmed at the time. Um, the producers of the A Team didn't threaten to sue, but did gently say, "You know, if you call it the B Team, we can't promise we're not going to sue you." So <laughs> that was a, a nice way of doing it, right? Um, now, when doing for the, the press for the film, he explained the TLC references uh, from Michael Keaton were all improvised. Those were moments that Burton just brought to the film uh, or, or that. Sorry, that Keaton. Sorry, let me redo that. Yeah. When doing press for the film, uh, he explained the TLC references were improvised by Michael Keaton, um, which in the moment, which are some of the best moments of the film, which is why he is my true Batman uh, and will always be. Um, during Did you watch the, fil- the Flash? Yes, and I enjoyed it. I loved okay. Keaton in okay. that. I enjoy- okay. it, it wasn't it wasn't great, but Keaton made it. I mean, like, I, I, I if it wasn't Keaton, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. To be honest. Um, yeah. Now, during the filming of Talladega Nights. Um, they basically took over the entire uh, town of Charlotte and Adam converted a closed down, closed down businesses uh, and churches into sets. Um, now, he and Will worked very closely together for a very long time. Unfortunately, yeah. their working relationship broke up uh, after some hurt feelings dur- during the casting of an L.A. Lakers documentary directed by by Adam, uh, who to this day regrets, uh, that, that choice and has apologized, uh, for not cat, for changing the casting, uh, and dropping will from the movie. Um, he holds a star on the Hollywood walk of fame in front of the Hollywood wax museum. And most recently doing some very serious stuff, including vice, the big short and I not have not being a succession watcher did not realize this succession is an Adam McKay production. Um, and that is as far a diversion from, uh, like stepbrothers as you could possibly get, (laughs) but it is about family dynamics. So there is a threat. (laughs) There is a threat. I think we should head downstairs and take a listen to what Matt and Deremy have to say. Don't you think?
guests, Jamie and Matt. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for this episode of the SNO Hall of Fame. And today's nominee is someone who is probably a lot more famous for his non-SNL stuff, even though he, he did great work uh, on SNL. But a lot of people currently know him for being a high-profile director in Hollywood. He made the transition from from SNL writer to uh, to director. So I'm so excited today to be talking about one Adam McKay. Adam McKay is going to be our topic today here on the SNL Hall of Fame. And we have a great person joining me to talk about Adam McKay. And uh, Deremy, Deremy, you always, you pick the interesting nominees, man. Like Dick yeah. Ebersol last season and now Adam McKay. Yeah, you know, uh, Thomas, always a pleasure. I love visiting the hall with you, getting down to some SNL history. But I like to get into those people because I feel like true SNL fandom recognizes the great cast members. Of course, they're the ones we see every week, every Saturday night. But there's so many important people behind the scenes that help make Saturday Night Live this great institution. And I love showing them some love. You know, I'm an offensive lineman kind of guy. So I love like those guys who are important, but don't get that big credit. I want to give them love. So I love finding those different kind of nominees for us to discuss. Yes. So we got into the trenches, uh, so to speak, last season with Dick Ebersol and today with uh, Adam McKay. And of course, the official introduction, Deremy Dove, co-host of the Bigger Than the Game podcast with his uh, cohort, Jose Ruiz. I was lucky enough to appear on two episodes of Bigger Than the Game uh, back in June. We talked some NBA draft. We went nuts with NBA draft talk, Deremy. So that was that was a lot of fun. Most recently, uh, Deremy and Jose have covered, uh, they did a two-parter on Bo Jackson, which I found really interesting. Of course, first part being baseball, second part being football. Jose and Deremy have a lot to say on sports and just everything in general, man. You guys do such a great job. No, thank you, Thomas. And it was so much fun pleasure was all ours having you on our show and breaking down the nba draft in different years and uh man i we can't wait to have you back on so it it was just i feel like i owe you you know (laughs) a a great appearance on here now because you did such a great job on our podcast yeah we'll just keep doing these home and homes because it seems to be working out really well so thank you so much deremy so today we are discussing again adam mckay and as I had mentioned, a lot of people know Adam McKay now as a director, but his roots, Deremy, a lot of people don't know, are actually in sketch comedy. Right, right. So Adam McKay was going to Temple University, my alma mater, and then you know that he had one semester left, which I give people credit when you're that close and you say, I'm going for my dream, like, hey, that's that's gutsy. And he winds up moving to Chicago, and he was one of the founders of UCB. And that's such a huge name and huge group when it comes to improv and sketch comedy. And Amy Poehler was a part of that, Matt Walsh, Horatio Sands. So many people who we know now in the comedy world came out of UCB, which uh, Adam was a co-creator of. And also going on to Second City and being a part of that cast. So he definitely had that sketch and improv training you know before he wound up going to 30 rock yeah it seemed like he was hyper focused as you mentioned like one semester away at temple and he's like i'm pursuing my dream uh that was around 93 that he along with like amy poehler and those others co-founded ucb the upright citizens brigade flash forward 
uh, after UCB also did some uh, performing at the Improv Olympic in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So he really had strong roots there in the uh, sketch and improv community. But SNL, so we go back to uh, 1995. SNL's transitioning from season 20, a notorious season 20, as a lot of us SNL fans know. So they needed a few breaths of fresh air. They needed some new blood. So, Jeremy, like, does McKay's impact on SNL possibly resonate even more because he became a writer in such, like, an important year? Oh, absolutely. For me, um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of your Paula Pell episode that you did last season where, you know, if people who either if you remember, if you were around or if you're younger and don't know or whatever the case may be, you know, this was a crucial time in SNL's history. And a lot of people, and including Lorne Michaels himself, says this was the most difficult time he had as executive producer, where he's getting outside pressure from the Saturday Night is Dead, you know, all those critiques that they've heard throughout the history. But even in-house, a lot of NBC executives were really coming down Lorne's throat and making him having this battle of wills and talking about forcing out certain writers, certain uh cast members like a Farley, Sandler, different people had to go. So Lauren has even said, you know, recently that that was the most difficult time. So bringing in like a Paula Pell, but an Adam McKay and that, you know, a lot of those cast members was really crucial in saving Saturday Night Live. Yeah, we had talked about in our Dick Ebersol episode how there are a few people and a few moments in SNL history where like the show needed saving. Mm-hmm. And I think this transition from season 20 to season 21, the show was genuinely in trouble. I mean, it was genuinely close, I think, to getting canceled. And as much as I love Farley and Sandler and those guys, there was just a lot of uncontrolled bro kind of energy in that yeah. last season. It was very sloppy. Uh, man, it was very like just a weird vibe in that season 20. It's it's one of those weird things because as like someone, and I'm sure you're the same way, who's fans of like artists and the creatives, you don't want like the quote unquote suits getting involved and stepping in. But if I'm honest, looking back, I understand why some, well, I think they took it too far, but I understand why mm-hmm. they were saying hey, we have some issues here with what's going on with Saturday Night Live because, like you said, love Farley, love Sailor, had great moments. But at that point, I felt like it was bro comedy, but kind of on autopilot yeah, as well. And I felt like was. A, a shift was needed and a change was needed to kind of, for me, when I look at Saturday Night Live and we're at those moments where it's like, what's going on Saturday Night Live or Saturday Night Dead and all those jokes, I feel like SNL... It can evolve, but ultimately it has to get back to its roots of what makes this show great. And I feel like it gets lost. And when it comes back, it's really Lauren and the writers and the cast kind of being like, this is what comedy, like sketch comedy is. And we're going to stick to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they they pretty much totally cleaned house. I mean, they retained they retained Molly Shannon, who was a late addition in season 20. They retained Tim Meadows, Norm MacDonald. Uh, but they really brought in like just a lot of new faces. Will Ferrell on a gas tire, Sherry O'Terry, Tracy Morgan at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just a lot of fresh blood was needed. And that included uh, our topic today, 
uh, Adam McKay. So uh, we could get, unless you have anything else to add about, you know, him getting to SNL or whatever, we can get to some of the, some of his notable sketches, Jeremy, if you, if you'd like. Well, sure. I guess the only thing I would, I would add is Adam comes in, he's like 27 that first year. And so we are, you know, Thomas and I are talking about the pressure that Lorne and the show was under. But after that first year as a 28 year old, you know, Steve, he talked, Adam talks about Steve Higgins calling him into his office and saying, Lorne wants to make you head writer. And I think that's just amazing twofold that at the age of 28, you're the head writer for SNL, but also it's only your second year at the show, which I think shows what Lauren saw in him, but also big credit to what we talked about, that UCB Second City background that he kind of was going on having bring into the show. I think Lauren really kind of took a lot of faith and believed him. Yeah, so he started, of course, in season 21. Yeah, by season 22, he was head writer, co-head writer that first season, and then he was head writer by himself in seasons 23 and 24. So that is a lot of trust put on Adam McKay. Uh, Just from a viewer's perspective, as an SNL fan, what kind of importance do you place on the head writer? Like, what do you, how do you view the head writer's role in the grand scheme of how the show functions? I feel the head writer has a very important role for me as a viewer, uh, as that bridge of Lorne, but also kind of making sure the writers and cast members are on the same page. So to me, like they're for people who know TV, you hear the term like showrunner. Like, Lauren's the executive producer, but I wouldn't call him the showrunner. He helps, like, make decisions. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that head writer is the showrunner, where a lot of the show's sensibility is coming from that head writer's, like, voice. And, like, Lauren obviously has final say in what goes on air. And he consults with his producers and the head writer. But I feel like the head writer is kind of the one really helping to bring what the show, like where we're going with the show and also who we're highlighting on screen with the show and the type of humor that we're seeing every week. Right. Right. And where, where would you say as a viewer, the sensibility and voice was like in those seasons, 2021, basically in the late nineties after the, the disastrous season 20, where do you think the, the voice was that Adam McKay helped? Like where were we in about 98 or so that period? I feel like with what, and I will kind of get into it with the sketches too, but I feel, A, he saw what we kind of all have been seeing on the big screen for all these years, you know, the partnership kind of ended, but he saw the connection and the greatness in Will Ferrell. And to me, very quickly, Will Ferrell becomes that lead alpha dog for the show. And how he has a great cast around him too, all the names you mentioned and that continues throughout his stay. But I feel the sensibility, it kind of got back to a little bit of, I would say, what I loved about that era, it was a good blend of like subversive kind of humor, but also what I loved about, especially with Will Ferrell and McKay too, writing is they take the norm and they kind of put a twist on it. So Will Ferrell... And different, they kind of have that normal, like, middle America feel to a sketch. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's this, er, this, like, twist. And you're kind of going, wait, what the hell? Yeah. And, like, it was, like, a good mix of relating to everyone. This is what everyone was kind of watching or seeing, whether it's a pop culture reference or just we could be like, hey, we know that guy or I know that lady. 
and then they'll put this random twist in there that you're not expecting and it just cracks you up and i feel like Adam McKay helped to bring in like that mix of both. Yeah, I completely agree. Automatically, I think of like uh, Will Ferrell yelling at his kids to get off the shed when he's just yeah. kind of barbecuing. You know, Johnny, did you thank Brandon and Michael's parents for giving you the Lion King video? Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome, son. I just hope you enjoy watching it as much as Brandon and Michael do. Get off the shed! Uh, his that, first sketch really yeah that was like he auditioned with that too right. yeah then that was just of course the middle america barbecue and then he just kind of snaps or like like the the dad the i drive a dodge stratus like it's just a family having dinner and then it just derails from there you're totally yeah. right about that it's just they, they nail it so perfectly and i feel like like you said they kind of gotten a little too bro culture beforehand and it kind of went back to um I, don't get me wrong, I love subversive humor, but I I think it's really cool when people can kind of come up with comedy that everyone can relate to and everyone can connect with. And like, oh, we've seen that pop culture reference or we've seen a commercial or a parody, like kind of like, oh, we all know it and they put a twist on it. I think that's just beautiful. Yeah, I think uh, McKay and a lot of the other writers and cast members that came in around season 21 or so, and even some of the holdovers, I think a huge difference between that era and like season 20 was that you still had plenty of oddball humor, plenty of absurdist material. But I think in the late 90s after season 20, I think they did a better job of making it smarter and more focused and yeah. actually like having a point to it. Rather That's a good just, way to put it. Yeah, just not having just somebody's just not on screen yelling or they're just not made. They're not making, and there's plenty of this too. Like they would make, it was just the comedy. Sometimes the humor at the time they would make like gay jokes that weren't funny just, uh, and everything like that. So some of that can be excused as just maybe a product of the times, but a lot of the more absurdist material, especially stuff that had to do with everyday life was done. in I think in a more smart kind of calculated way. And I think you can tell that Adam McKay's fingerprints were on a lot of that. Right, and I think that's what SNL, whether you look at it from the original you know, first five years in the 70s to then even when it got back on footing in like the 80s with like Dana, you know, Carvey and Hartman and all those, it, like you said, it has a focused look, but it's like, hey, we had the subversive stuff for later on at like 12.45, closer to 1 a.m., but hey, what we're going to hook you in at 11.30 is what's going on in the time and what like we all can be like, oh, they're making a parody about this politician or about this show or about this certain person in pop culture. And they're putting their own spin and their own take on it. That's making you laugh, but honestly making you think a little bit too. Yeah. And I think an early example of some of the absurdist material uh, that's kind of rooted in like an everyday situation uh, is one of Adam McKay's favorite sketches that he that he cites that he wrote was the wake up and smile sketch uh, from yeah. from season twenty one that was with Will Ferrell, Nancy Walls, and David Allen Greer, who was the host of that episode. And just like I think it's just such unhinged genius, just that sketch. For those who don't remember, it was a morning talk show that uh, the teleprompter went out. And the hosts panic, and it becomes a Lord of the Flies situation, yes. ultimately. The order of the hand will rule! Oh, the animals of the zoo guy, Danny Usher, will sustain us. But what if the box still refuses to give us word? You challenge my authority? I 
smell from your scent that you are weak. I challenge you! So yeah, Jeremy, is that like I think I think it's a pretty good example of like the absurdist uh, yeah. nature of that time. It, it's it's like it's absurdist, and I think he's done a great job. Kind of when we see like later on, like the films he's done, it's like absurdist, but it it's it's in that Steve Martin school where what made Steve Martin like really cool, like especially in the seventies doing stand up, was he wore the suit. He looked like, Oh, like this nice conservative guy. And then he's like, he's like flipping it. You know, his comedy is flipping everything like upside down and he's, you know, wild and crazy and all that stuff. And I think Adam McKay takes that to like another level where it's like, this is the establishment. And it's kind of like, we're making, he's making fun of these news programs. Like, Hey, we're taking them serious because just because they're on TV and they're wearing a suit or, you know, like that. But then it's really like, why are we taking them serious? And it's like, who, who, what makes them the authority? Mm-hmm. So he kind of has a little bit of like flipping, you know, the status quo on its head and being a little like anti-authority, I would say, in, yeah. in what he's like trying to do and still trying to do to this day. Yeah, like what do, he's saying, what, what do they really have to say if it's not on the teleprompter? Right. You know, right, and and I know I have I have friends who are in the news industry who just like love that sketch too because uh, that they can laugh at themselves. But I think yeah, I think McKay that's kind of that's that's like a, a a decent point or a point that you can tell that he's that he's trying to make amidst all that chaos and and absurdity. And it's just, it's it's just on its face, just like one of my favorite sketches yeah, and, and from that era. It, and sadly, it's showing it's that sketch worked great then, but it's even worse now where it's like. Oh, because they have a, a a camera on them or a microphone on them, we're listening, and it's like to them, and it's like, why are we listening to these people? Like, what's really in in their head? And it's like a lot of times, sadly, it, it's yeah, it's empty. Yeah, right, you know, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Jeremy, did you get a chance to watch the? Uh, I sent you like maybe a list of some stuff that I was interested in. Did you watch yeah. the whole Kogan talk show by chance? That yes, which is one of the ones that Adam said. He said, um. Maybe like eight times in the years that he was there, he saw Lauren like laugh out loud at like sketches. Uh-huh. And he said that was one of the ones that like he was proud that that was his sketch that he wrote and he saw Lauren laugh out loud, which was very cool to know because I think that sketch is just, it's brilliant. And I think just on its head, like it's the truth of like what, what honestly these talk shows were and have become which is like they're not they're just like they're supposed to be serious but it's like what's the difference between this and re- pro wrestling at this point yeah they're just yeah. trying to be entertainment and the way will ferrell plays that i think is just why will ferrell's like one of the he's a goat as far as like snl history yeah because yeah. he's taking it so seriously but then oh we have the the off the top the brandy savage off the top rope segment going on right now and the guy's trying to like talk to him and like have a conversation about something serious and he keeps having these like wrestling breaks that are just like this classic comedy now you were taken hostage for two years yes an extremist group kidnapped me and held me captive in a garage uh they took away my sense of identity and they constantly subjected me to prolonged psychological torture and then they were 
Very sorry to interrupt, but in keeping with the format of the show, it's time for the Hulkamania wrestling moment of the week. I'm really sorry, Steve. <laughs> Sting was having none of Paul Orndorff's roughneck games at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Yeah, like just the way it starts, too, because it's kind of that Will Ferrell, Adam McKay voice of like a misdirect. Are we going to take something? We're going to defy your expectations. So I just love the way it starts. It's maybe one of my favorite beginnings to a sketch. So it's just like this fast pace music and it's just somebody singing. And you're just kind of getting like riled up and getting energized, like professional wrestling vibe. And then they, they cut to the show and it turns out that Hulk Hogan's off that week, so so your guest host is, and it's just some like standard middle of the road name. The Hulkster always reaches for the star. Hulk Hogan is on vacation. I'm your guest host, Phil Tobin. <laughs> it's a very buttoned up guy who's like wanting to talk about real issues, and he, he the guy who he's talking to was um a hostage or something yes yeah yeah he was like a hostage yeah yeah so he was interviewing this guy who was a hostage and asking him about this like terrible thing that happened to him but then as part of the format of the show he had to break into like the uh slam of the week or whatever yeah. segment that the hulk hogan talk show has so it's just i think that's just they like to play with those expectations they like to play with like juxtaposition of something super serious amidst something absurd and how those two interact right. with each other. I think this is a great example. Yeah. And I think if for, for those who don't think about the McKay Farrell partnership for SNL, they just think about the, the movies and funnierdie.com, which are all great staples of 2000, you know, comedy. But I think you really to see the roots of why those two worked so well together for so long, you go to SNL and you look at the history and like you can see that those two had it. And like you said, if, and they're great at doing that. They're great at hooking you in with like, oh, wow, what is this? Or like even like a, a heartfelt kind of moment and the like, like the colonial insurance where it's like, oh, wow. And then they just kind of like do a flip and twist and it winds up just breaking you every time. You're just cracking up. Yeah, they're they're just masters at that. What what other uh, McKay sketches kind of stood out to you from that era? And 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 we, I know some listeners who are familiar with McKay know that he did uh, shorts. So we'll get to those. Like they, they were kind of separating his sketch work from like the shorts that he did on uh, SNL. So what well, what sketches? I think my favorites are a tie. Like the Hulk Hogan show was great, but the uh, the storytellers Neil Diamond. Is just just masterful because just watching those shows and then having Will Ferrell with uh, with John Goodman and, and Tim Meadows mm -hmm. and just you know Will Ferrell does and he does the impression of like Neil Diamond. I wouldn't say uh, maybe I'm maybe you disagree, Tom. It's not dead on, but it's close enough. It's like mm -hmm. decent. Where I'm like yeah, he kind of when he's talking sounds like Neil and has that like I don't know that eternal optimism when he's talking. But then he starts getting real dark with it, and John Goodman's like, "No, don't, don't, don't tell that story, Neil. Yeah. Don't tell that story. Leave me it, out it, of this. Yeah, leave me out of this. I Neil. will leave you in. Yeah, I will <laughs> leave you in, Gary. <laughs> and it's just like it's just that one is just hilarious, and it just keeps getting darker and darker. Sweet Caroline, good 
times never seem so good. Thank you. Thank you. It gets crazy on the road and awful lonely. That's why I love pornography. This next song is all about my love of hardcore, barely legal porno. With all these songs that are like, even to this day, they're so like upbeat and positive, but the stories, you know, <laughs> it's just, I, I'm going to crack up on it, but I think that might be, uh, that might be my favorite for the Adam McKay sketches is the, the Neil Diamond storytellers. Yeah. It's just another one that just defies expectations. Like a lot of times, maybe in previous SNL that we would see a Neil Diamond impression and it would be like kind of light tamer jokes, but McKay and Farrell, I think as a duo, weren't afraid to boost it with just absurdity and maybe a little vulgarity. I think yeah. the sketch aired at the end. I think it was maybe like a 10 to 1, honestly, so. that they threw at the end of the episode. It was a John Goodman episode, so he was in this sketch. and But they just weren't afraid to just take it over that line. And I, I, and I don't think they were being mean to Neil Diamond. It almost seemed in a weird way like it was still done out of some love. No, I don't. I don't think it's a bashing uh, uh, for Neil Diamond at all. Like I, I think it. The joke is like it's so ep- like different and so outrageous. That's what makes it hilarious. And they picked like the right artist. I feel who is like he's a known dude, but he's not like. I feel like a lot of people know him, but he's not like I wouldn't call him iconic. Mm-hmm. But he's like a superstar. But everyone knows these like positive, upbeat anthems from him. And so it's like, that's what you're thinking. Like, oh, VH1 Storytellers, what you're going to get from, like, Neil Diamond. But then they just get darker. I like how, like, it's just dark, and then the next story is darker, and, like, the darkest for, like, the end. Like, it's just brilliant. Yeah, it's one of my favorite uh, sketches from around that time. That was in season 23. So go look at the John Goodman episode uh, yeah. from season 23. This this sketch uh, maybe a little hard to find, but it, it exists on the internet mm-hmm. uh, if you know where to look. So McKay also had a hand in uh, one of the more famous early commercial parodies of the time, that old Glory Insurance. I'm Sam Waterston of the popular TV series Law & Order. As a senior citizen, you're probably aware of the threat robots pose. Robots are everywhere, and they eat old people's medicine for fuel. Well, now there's a company that offers coverage against the unfortunate event of a robot attack, Old Glory Insurance. I think it was important for this era actually like this specific thing like in terms of establishing tone and credibility for the show like i know a lot of people who weren't necessarily huge snl fans that just loved sharing this sketch with me oh it's such a great sketch and and it's broken because i feel like you can still see a little bit now but i mean now we're in streaming but i feel like in cable all of us who grew up with cable especially i mean we're in summer and like if you were a kid home during the summer midday and you would get those commercial breaks for like insurance and they always would kind of be like that. Like some elderly people sitting around and it's like, can you believe uh, Janet fell last week? She fell. Oh, well, I'm just glad I have my insurance. That'll blah, blah, blah. And then some spokesman comes out. It's important for your loved ones to have so-and-so insurance. So I feel like maybe younger people don't see that, but I feel like our age group, Thomas, those were commercials we always saw. So for him to kind of spoof that, but then flip it on like robots, oh, yeah. you know, it was just like, it's just brilliant. Robots are stealing old, old people's medicine and using them as fuel. And yeah, 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 you're right. It was a great parody of us uh, when I would be homesick 
quote unquote sick from school and what be watching the watching the price is right and those commercials would come on and yeah that that was great and looking at McKay's work now as a director like seeing some of the um some of the statements that 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 he's tries to make about society and whatnot right um looking back at this sketch, it seems like you know he probably had a point of view about like insurance companies and how they try to prey on elderly people and things like that there so there was a point of view there. Yeah, you start to see it. I think you can see it a little bit in the sketch work, but I think especially being head writer, you're juggling so much. But in, in, in those sketches, he's showing like a little bit of like he's getting angry with the world. And I feel like when we you know, get to like the short film era that he was doing, then you really see him like mm-hmm. like the blueprint out there for what we see later on in his uh, filmmaking career. Yeah, you start seeing. I mean, it's interesting to just go look back and seeing the the little seedlings of 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 his voice that you know. But now in twenty twenty three, we know what Adam McKay's voice is now in terms of like his point of view and everything. But seeing these little seedlings there uh, early on in his sketches uh, is pretty fun. Uh, he's also behind. He wrote the the first installment of Celebrity Jeopardy. Sean Connery, it's still your board. Ah. Uh. I'll take swords for 400. It's actually not swords, <laughs> sir. Swords. These are words that begin with S. The answer is Popeye is this sort of man. Burt Reynolds. What is Popeye? <laughs> no. Sean Connery. And remember, these are words that begin with the letter S, not swords. Shaber. No. It began with a bloody S. I mean, how important were those Celebrity Jeopardy sketches to that era of SNL? And and until, like, current day. Yeah. Like, you know, really, <laughs> honestly, like, um, they, they've gone through a generation. I, I, I think uh, those Celebrity Jeopardy sketches were so huge in that era in really kind of bringing back the SNL that like people were missing, I feel, and bringing back like what I hate to say it because I feel like, I guess I don't like agreeing with the suits, but like, that's what they were missing. You know, those sketches that people were like on Sunday morning or Monday morning, were talking about and the celebrity jeopardy then and now if you talk to someone the day after on a Sunday or on Monday, you know, you're talking to me back at work, you're referencing Celebrity Jeopardy. And I think that is just a huge, like, big ups to Adam McKay and Will Ferrell and, you know, from when Norm was on there and different people, like, who could really bring that home. And it showcased a lot of the cast talent, but also, like, hey, you got a lot of them in a sketch. And then we all were talking about it, like, that next week. And they, we still do that to this day with those sketches. In a way, they were doing viral content before we had a term for that. Right. Those Celebrity Jeopardy sketches did go viral in a late 90s, early 2000s kind of way, meaning that we would talk about it at school or work the next day, maybe even download them from uh, Kazaa or Napster or whatever. Right, <laughs> like, right. Uh, yeah, I would, I would spend an hour downloading just like one Celebrity Jeopardy sketch. Uh, and, to- and I feel like when those were on... Those were what were the, even if it wasn't for you personally, like that week, like the funniest sketch, but the first sketch when you talked with another SNL fan, you were talking about the Celebrity Jeopardy sketches. 
and it appealed to I mean the fact that it appealed to non SNL fans mm-hmm. alike was just so huge. It's kind of like the cowbell sketch, like the, like something like that just transcends whether you're a fan of SNL and even gets those haters to say, "Oh man, well SNL usually sucks, but this one was great." Yeah, that's that's the goal. That's the gold standard to me. I'm glad you said that. Fine, like the iconic sketches is when the people who don't really watch, they're not the SNL fans like you and I who are watching it weekly. uh, Yeah, yeah. It has been good since Eddie Murphy. It has been good since Dana Carvey. We always hear that. Or Farley. Exactly. But but they know those sketches and they can, I like that one. That was okay. But everything else stinks though. It's like, all right. But then they end up naming like 15 to 20 sketches that they love. Yeah. But but it it sucks anyway. It's it's a terrible show though. (laughs) Yeah, those were, those were super iconic. Before, I have one last point about McKay's sketches, but I didn't want, if you had anything else that the listeners should know as far as his sketch work goes, I wanted to give the floor to you. Well, I think the the big one to me that I always knew he was a part of uh, was the Bill Bransky yes. sketches. And I think those are like brilliant where it's classic from, you know, classic improv type of sketch where you can reference a person or something that's like not on stage it's not there but you can everyone who's on a part of the scene can get a lot of work out of it and i think those commercials or those like sketches always were great where i don't know you kind of always like like i said like or you've said we all know like that classic scene that image of like that salesman you know that glenn gary glenn ross is a tough job and blah 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 but it's like oh well you know Bill, Bill Bransky, blah, blah, blah. And then it's the, we're all like toasting this guy and all those things. Bill, Bill Bransky! You know, Brasky goes about nine foot eight, 790 pounds. Oh, you know, he sheds his skin once a year. I once saw him scissor kick Angela Lansbury. <laughs> and I feel like that's just another thing of him finding like what we know, what's the image in our heads of like, this hard, you know, middle of America, like traveling salesman, and these guys, hey, it's a tough job, and they're drinking, they're getting drunker and drunker, and they're toasting this one guy. It, it just is a brilliant type of sketch that they do. And Farrell and John Goodman, like they always would nail it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. David Keckner, we'll give a yes. little David Keckner shout out here on this yes. podcast. Uh, yeah, he was great, and I think that format of a sketch and that premise just really lends itself to be able to just provide like really evocative writing to get really weird with it. Like if you, so you're establishing a Paul Bunyan kind of character in Bill Brasky. That means the writing could get creative. You can say anything about Bill Brasky, any, anything absurd about Bill Brasky. And we, as the viewer have to believe it because this mm-hmm. is, it's Bill Brasky. We've already established who Bill Bat Brasky. So you get super creative with it. And it's classic McKay, like Farrell kind of there. And I, and I'll, say why to the viewers in a little bit why i keep putting them together but it's classic where they keep getting weirder and weirder and it keeps it keeps building up to like it's a stranger stranger and then at first you're kind of like oh that's funny and then even like you know john all of them in the in the sketch are like huh huh but they, they keep just building up to like how absurd it is and i think that is i think if you're watching those sketches if you're watching what mckay and Farrell do and I've heard this before that a sign of how someone is like brilliant is they make it look easy to everybody. Everyone thinks they can do it. So if you watch it, you think, oh yeah, that's not that hard. Like, yes, it is to make 
everyone kind of say, oh, I get it. I know that person or I know that scenario or I know that scene or I've seen that. And everyone can like, you got them hooked where we all relate. But then you flip it. And, you know, we know we know it's a comedy show. We know it's going to be flipped, but we don't know how or when or how big you're going to flip it. And to have that timing down just right takes a lot of it's, – it's hard to do, and these guys nail it. Yeah, yeah, they nailed it every time. It's one of those where I can imagine them sitting in the writer's room just volleying, like, yes, just what can we say about Bill Brasky? Let's come up with some ideas. And I, I, that would just be such a fun writer's room to be a part of. And I don't know, Jeremy, do you remember in the mid-2000s all the Chuck Norris when the Chuck Norris stuff became yes, popular and viral? Like, it was like a Paul Bunyan, like, oh, Chuck Norris – Whatever, look up Chuck Norris jokes. Right, right. As SNL fans, we had Chuck Norris jokes before that. It was Bill Brasky. Yes, absolutely. That's a good point. That's a good point, Bill. Bill Brasky was those Chuck Norris stories way before it. And another uh, kind of sketch that has lasted for generations, you know, like they, they've been able to use that, especially when Will Ferrell comes back on. Yeah. Like they've been able to use that Bill Brasky type of They brought of sketch. Paul Rudd back. Yes, to do it. They've incorporated Alec Baldwin as a Brasky guy. Like they, it's one of those where if a host is down to do it, and they have the chops to do it, you can just put a host in with you know. It was one of those that they could replicate. You know, Will Ferrell was like at the core of it, uh, but they could replicate it with different John, whether it's John Goodman, Paul Rudd, or Alec Baldwin. And that right there is like a testament to. I know we're going to get to like the Hall of Fame, like, making the case. But right there, when you have not only, like, in my opinion, iconic sketches, but they don't just last in your time. They're being able to last years and years after you've gone from the show and being used like that. Like, that's that's an iconic legacy to have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another thing, another kind of iconic legacy that formed when you're talking late 90s and early 2000s SNL was the political sketches. Right. So especially the uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore debates. And mm-hmm. Adam McKay, uh, along with Jim Downey, of course. Jim Downey yes, gets a lot great of credit Jim Downey. This, But yeah, the great Jim Downey and Adam McKay wrote a lot of, of these uh, political cold opens and whatnot with uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore. Well, that brings us to the close of tonight's debate. Each candidate will now give a brief closing statement. Jim, could I make two closing statements? <laughs> I'm afraid not. In fact, we are almost out of time, so I will instead ask each candidate to sum up in a single word the best argument for his candidacy. Governor Bush? Strategery. (laughs) Vice President Gore? Lockbox. I think those helped get SNL into another golden era. Yeah, I I think the mid like to late 90s it's rising up like these guys the writers and the cast are really gelling and they have great work. That 2000 election was just golden. I mean, it was golden in so many ways that it was just perfect for them and to have the perfect kind of candidates and George W Bush and Al Gore but then to have the perfect people with Daryl Hammond being Al Gore, and I don't think there was anyone who was just made for Will Ferrell to be more than George W. Bush, yeah. and they just nailed it. And uh, Adam McKay said that, and and some of those, I think the um, I'm trying to remember the 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 Palm Beach, I believe, sketch. Yes, yes. 
that George W. Bush, his staff, he caught his staff watching and laughing at the sketch that we know Will Ferrell was doing and that like George W. Bush got pissed at his staff for watching it. But I, yeah. I think it's just, it, it was something that you have those two guys to nail it and then you have a recount. So then you get even more, you know, the, the election isn't over after election night. So then it's just, you can milk it more and more and more. I think you're right. Led, it led to where those are the golden days of SNL like it's always talked about, but you have like Saturday Night Dead or what's wrong with it. But when it's like everyone can't wait and everyone is hyped for eleven thirty to talk about it, and it's front page on the newspapers, mm-hmm. that's the stuff that we like crave for as SNL fans. And the two thousand election was definitely that. Yeah, everybody was saying lockbox and strategery uh, right right after that. Like the <laughs> that just became part of when somebody wanted to make a joke, they might use the word strategery. Or something in there, and that I mean that came from these SNL sketches, and uh, yeah, that that Palm Beach one that you referenced. I'm not I'm not shocked that the real George W. Bush got pissed because especially in that sketch, it really painted George W. Bush as like an infantile moron, even more oh, yeah. so than than the uh, debate sketches. Like that oh, yeah. Palm oh, oh. Beach one really kind of went after him, and it was Val Kilmer playing J- his brother Jeb. Anna Gasteyer was Catherine Harris uh, from the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Daryl Hammond made an appearance as Al Gore. Chris Parnell did a great Tom Brokaw, but it was just like during that recount, Jeremy and I could see maybe why George W. like yeah. got annoyed by his staffers laughing at that. I'm I'm kind of like man, like I would love to see like with the staffers like. Why would you have that on in his presence? (laughs) But then maybe before he was like, okay with it. But I'm like, that's the one, like, I would not want to, like, that was a bad one where it's like, yeah, like, you you might get fired, like, like if he catches you laughing at that, like, but I mean, I think it's funny, but I'm not George W. Bush, but it it was, well, it was, I think it was during a point where most people and probably McKay included, they were just getting frustrated. It was during the recount. So it was yeah. the Florida recount as like a soap opera, which it was. So, I mean, it, it was maybe the obvious play is to say, like, let's actually like do a soap opera sketch revolving around this stuff. But I think you can tell you can sense the frustration in the writing. Yeah. And I think that's what's best. What about a political sketch when you can look at it and you can say like both whatever political belief you have you feel like they're getting the other side really good and when i look at like this sketch i feel like i see what you mean with the frustration and i feel like they're frustrated with the candidates but they're frustrated with the system and this process and it's just nonsense so now we're just really going for it here yeah um and and i feel like that's where that down uh the downy but also like the mckay like he's angry at the system and he's pretty much yelling to us like don't you see the crap that's going on in front of you like this is like you should be outraged which and that we becomes, see in his most recent you were gonna say yeah it yeah becomes a his trend movies with yeah absolutely and, and it's in his movies his podcast his tv shows like he's really doing that now and like you see it here you see it in his snl days clear yeah. as day yeah absolutely so to recap so just based on his sketch work as a writer, Adam McKay. So he was he played a part in the formation of the Celebrity Jeopardy sketches, iconic, the iconic Bill Brasky stuff. He was uh, a big part in the political cold opens and sketches that just almost defined a whole era 
a whole golden era of mm-hmm. SNL. Had great one-offs like Wake Up and Smile, Old Glory Insurance, Neil Diamond Storytellers, Hulk Hogan Talk Show. So his resume already, I mean, awesome. Like just as a sketch writer, a head the head writer, we should say, for three seasons. Man, uh, so then we get to a time that, you know, Adam McKay toward about season 20, heading into season 25, he felt like it was time to move on from writing on SNL mm-hmm. to directing. So he says that he just decided to take a shot. He, he thought he was going to get rejected, but he decided just to ask Lauren, can I do short films for SNL? And Lauren said, yes, absolutely. To, to McKay's surprise, he was actually given a budget and Lauren said, Go ahead and and make these short short films. So like in the you know harken back to the days of like a Tom Schiller, Gary Weiss, maybe even right. Albert Brooks doing short films on the show. So Adam McKay, he says this is how he learned to direct. Jeremy, so uh, very interesting short films. I might add eight in total. So yeah, what did you think of uh, some of Adam McKay's short film work here on on SNL? Uh, as and he was a director, but also uh, what he fought for, what Lauren gave it to him was to name his title as you know. So he was coordinator of falconry. Yeah, that's right. That was also <laughs> part of it that, that Adam McKay got to got to name his title. So yeah, so he was writer slash coordinator of falconry. Yeah, coordinator of falconry. <laughs> I love uh, it. Classic, classic McKay. Um, the HSO, like the heat is on. Is it's a great one. I love that. Uh, the Neil Armstrong, the Ohio years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it, it kind of, for some of these, it, it shows like both, like, which I think is really hard to do, which is some of them are just really out there with some of these shorts. But then some of them have what he did in the sketches, which is like real, like relatable. Cause like the Neil Armstrong, I, I like that one a lot because I feel like it kind of, it's something that we all have. We've all seen, which is someone who they're lucky enough to get of a certain age. It's like, oh, like mm-hmm. he or she used to be this, so they used to be able to do that. So can and you set that one up? Because I did highlight that one too, and I did find it relatable. But so can you set up kind of what the beats so of, the, it, of the short? Pretty much, it breaks down like Neil Armstrong went, you know, to the moon on whatever day in 1969, and then it's like in present day, he's like in Ohio. And he's just sitting on his couch and his wife's like, Neil, I need you. And, you know, pretty much like every other like guy, like his wife saying, I need you to do this. And he's just, I went to the moon. I went to the moon. He's saying that. And then he has to like go like to the store. Howdy. How's it hanging? Fine. I landed on the moon. Is that it? Yeah, that'd do it. Moon. That's uh, like nine bucks. There you go. All right. Moon! Moon! There's your bag. Thank you kindly. Moon! Is it in all of monologues just constantly reminding himself that he landed, he actually went to the moon? But, uh, and I think it's just, it's it's great to classically, I mean, to kind of always see that because it hits on both. It's like the relatability, like no matter what greatness, like we all have, like we have our time and then, hey, like sadly life will go on and then we think it happens to us, but no matter how how big you are, how famous you are, 
you're that guy who's like, I used to do this. I used to do all of this. Well, now you're this elderly guy who's just kind of like forgotten. And, this, you know, which is like a shame. But I think that's what hits on it. And just him saying, I went to the moon. Yeah. And I think that makes me laugh because it's just like, I, I did something important, damn it. And like, no one cares. Like, no one... No one's giving me this respect. I have to go to the to the convenience store and you know get milk like the average guy. But yeah, we all can relate to that, you know. Exactly. He has the he has the classic line like, "Oh man, I really did it! I landed on the freaking moon! Man, do I kick ass!" Like he's just that <laughs> that self talk, and I guess that would be something that I would have thought about almost every minute of the rest of my life. If I went yeah. to the moon, like, how could you not? Like, I think that's what McKay probably thought about. He's like, this is a guy who went to the freaking moon. How is it not on his mind every second of the rest of his life, right? Oh, yeah. And it's like, you know, and I'm not sure how old Neil Armstrong was when he did it. But it's almost like, man, you, you peak too soon. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I probably for us, like, I can't tell you how many Neil Armstrong middle schools I saw or like Neil Armstrong, you know, drive or way or something. So it was like, he's this guy. But I can honestly say for me, I go, where is Neil Armstrong? And he's just there. But like, he wasn't like a guy I saw all the time either. Yeah. But it was like, he did this thing that everyone could reference. But you would think like, well, he is he you're running for office or he should have this or that. And it was just like, no, Neil Armstrong yeah. went on the moon. In high school, it. I had an English teacher who actually went to Purdue with Neil Armstrong. So I, really? I heard about Neil Armstrong all the time because she was actually friends. Like they weren't just classmates. Like they would hang out together and they were friends. Oh, so wow. we got to hear about Neil Armstrong's Purdue days. <laughs> the Purdue years, not Neil Armstrong, the Ohio years. Is not the Ohio years. Portraying him. But, uh, and his wife uh, in the sketch has a great line. That she just says, can't you just get over it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like, you know. Yeah, it's cool that you went, but this is impacting our lives. Like, just please, like, yeah, <laughs> get over which, it. Which I think is classic McKay, which could we saw that, I believe, with like from some like veterans from different people, different groups at that time, where it's like they did this great thing. That's nice. And then it's like, all right, we're moving on. Yeah. Like, yeah, like it's right. like you get saluted, but move. And we still see that Sally to this day. It's like, hey, this person did all this. Oh, that's nice. Anyway, back to my phone. Back to what's yeah, happening now. Now, because yeah, it's it's like, exactly. You don't even get fifteen minutes of fame. It's like six minutes of fame. No, and, and like you said, he he went to the freaking moon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I love it. Know? Yeah, one of my other favorite Adam McKay shorts was the five finger discount, which okay. is the, which is the last one that he did. It was in season 26, and that was with um, Molly Shannon, who was not a cast member at the time. I think she just came back to do this. She plays a woman who shoplifts dogs from pet stores. Yes. <laughs> and Adam McKay plays another shoplifter. But this is just this is just classic. And, and Deremy, I, th- I don't know if I'm biased, but I got to say up front, one of, the, one of the things that really drew me to the sketch, too, was Molly quoting Boogie Down Productions. Criminal-minded? You've been blinded. If you're looking for a style like mine, you can't find it. I don't know if you caught yes. that. Yes, I she did. I did. Criminal, you're right. Criminal minded. <laughs> that was a yes. wonderful touch. <laughs> that was such a and and, and Molly. We got to give Molly Shane. I know you said her earlier. She was a big part of this this you know resurgence in SNL. But uh, Adam McKay really showing. And I know he had directed and some 
some theaters work when he was in Chicago before SNL. So he, he had had some like a little bit of like it's different than films, but he had a little bit of background in directing. But he really kind of showed like a different sensibility at this time. And I kind of give credit to him looking back at it to being like head writer. But I'm going to take a step back. I'm getting burned out and I'm going to really have fun and really try to explore and do something different here. And also to his props, you know, in that second year when he was a head writer, he brought in someone I think we all know and love, Miss Tina Fey. Yes. He brought her in. So I think also he probably said, I got someone here with a lot of talent, a lot of ideas who can kick ass at this position. So I don't have a problem stepping away from the head writer because uh, Tina Fey can do a great job. And she did. But uh, I just think it's awesome. And the sensibility in that 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 mm-hmm. short, which is a good way to go out too, is, is just a classic, classic McKay short. Yeah, and even though the material in these shorts kind of fit the absurdist nature of a lot of what we saw in SNL in that time period, I think these did strike a different almost visual tone. And it was yes. maybe still a little jarring for people. So you would go into these uh, these sketches that we're used to, and then all of a sudden it's this just like kind of disorienting short film that we hadn't seen probably since... Gosh, I'm trying to remember if they did a lot of short films. Tom Schiller every now and then, maybe in the late 80s, did stuff. But we hadn't really seen a lot of short films since since uh, the early days. And, and maybe Lorne was a little... I'm surprised he gave Adam McKay the green light right away because I don't think he had a great experience with Albert Brooks. Definitely did not. <laughs> yeah. Definitely did not. <laughs> but maybe he helped um, McKay was already on staff. But we hadn't well, seen something like this on SNL in a while. Well, let me ask you, Thomas, and maybe this is a far... Do you see a connection in Adam McKay's short films and then what the Lonely Island were to do, like, you know, some years later with making that going viral? Yeah. Do you see, like, there being a connection in, like, McKay helping to influence what the Lonely Island did? Yeah, it was. De- I think it was a definite influence. Uh, I don't know if it, if, you, if you asked the Lonely Island guys if they would put the one-to-one influence comparison, but I think it helped usher in. It helped open the door for sure. For the Lonely Island to do their thing, the but the, these were these are more rough. The Lonely Island did similar things in a more glossy, well produced, more polished sort of way. But these, yeah, these definitely set the foundation for I think Lorne trusting that something like this would have a place in, in SNL's format, which I I think is a a big. Uh a big plus for Adam's Hall of Fame candidacy, yeah. like that influence like and a, that connection. Like a trendsetter, especially yeah. for uh, now SNL Hall of Famers, the Lonely Island. Like, yes, you know, he helped set Adam McKay helped set the foundation for that. And with these, with some of these shorts, I just even though we we might not go into detail about all of them, I want to read the synopsis because just to give you and the listeners an idea of just what these were about. So Jeremy had referenced the very first one, the HSO. So that was a, a strange one with uh, Ben Stiller playing someone who says he could get anybody into bed in just a few lines. And his friends challenged him to do that with Glenn Fry from the Eagles yeah. who happened to be at the same bar uh, that they were at. And Ben Stiller's like, okay, I thought, yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get Glenn Fry into bed with just like three lines. And, and yeah. So Will Ferrell actually, came up with that or they did it was like a bit between them because will ferrell uh he started uh pretending to be glenn fry after seeing glenn fry at a lakers game and thinking to himself like man glenn fry must rule los angeles 
Right, right, right. And he just the way he was carrying himself. So that started off as a bit between Adam McKay and Will Ferrell that turned into the H is O, which the heat is on, mm-hmm. which which was uh, the the very first short. And then there was one uh, called Steven Hagen's Pawn Shop. That was Steve Buscemi. That was might have been my favorite too. Yeah, no, we, like, like yeah, but let's talk about that. Yeah, Steve Buscemi plays a pawn shop manager. Um, only the pawn shop specializes in buying and trading of food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is your favorite one. It's up there for me for sure, Jeremy. I'm Billy. My friends call me Goat, and uh, I run David Hagen's pawn shop here in Brooklyn. This is Franklin. He helps me out with stuff. Peace. So we're the only pawn shop in all the five boroughs that specializes in uh, the buying, trading of food. I need to know how much can I get for these sweet ass waffles. All right, look, beat it before I call the cops. All right. I think what you and you had, what you nailed about it, where it looks different, it's not as polished as what we would see with the Lonely Island, but it still has like a cool kind of like gritty independent filmmaker look. And it's like stuff that we were kind of like, especially in that time, seeing like more independent movies in like the 90s into the 2000s. And I think um, the way it's shot, Steve, Steve Buscemi just in it, he just nails it where he has that kind of like, you know, that serious kind of like that annoyed, you know, uh, shop owner who is like, it's kind of like, why are you in business, bro? Like if you hate it so much <laughs> or you're so annoyed, like, why are you even doing this? Like, it seems like it's a hassle for you. But just the absurdity with, like, the food and I think, like, Will Ferrell coming in saying, I, I took a dump in your store. And he's like, I don't care. Because he was and trying to sell like, gum. And then yeah. the, the, and the sign clearly said, gum is not a food. Yeah, gum is not a food. You know, and um, was that Horatio who was with him in that Yeah, Horatio, who appeared in talk- a lot of those. Yeah, yeah, and then talking about, like, you know, I once threw out. You know, this whole bucket of clams. And I thought I thought they were they were rocks. <laughs> Steve Buscemi turns to him. Well, why'd you do that, man? Like, what? Yeah. And like, the way like the whole like beat of it was yeah. like so unique, where it was almost. I think that's what made I love that one so much. It's almost like he just did a short that wasn't supposed to be funny. It's like a like a like a mini documentary right. about this store, but like the beats in there. But if you watch that, you're just like. I could see if people got confused and were like, well, where is, is this really a store in New York? Yeah. Like the way he shot it just had a cool yeah. feel to it. And I think that's where sometimes I give people credit in this SNL world to have the right mind or the eye to pick the right people. Steve Buscemi just nails that so well. Yeah. It reminded me of an early Gary Weiss short. Cause sometimes he would, Gary Weiss would do that. He would make shorts, but talk to real people. There's one time yeah. one where he talked to a lady uh, she was she was in a not she worked at a novelty store. Yes, she owned a yes. novelty store, and she was explaining like um, what was in the store and how you could use it. But she was the, what made that funny because was she was speaking earnestly about something ridiculous. But these right. are actors in this Adam McKay short. But the tone was pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And and if it's not like Steve Buscemi's pretty known and distinct, and we know Horatio. If if, I, if you're someone who's not really a movie fan or an SNL fan, you're thinking that that's real. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. if you just if I just put that on for you, you're kind of like, what the hell is this? Like yeah. it, it was just that's my favorite of all the the Adam McKay shorts. Yeah, that was in season 25, uh, episode 17. So go check that out. Uh, shout out uh, to another one. Will Ferrell plays a guy who's sitting in his apartment, and and some somebody comes in and unleashes a Doberman on Will yes. Ferrell. 
and there's just chaos ensues. Will Ferrell just goes nuts like only Will Ferrell can. And then the twist is that Will Ferrell paid for this to happen because it's a service that a company provides. It's door-to-door Doberman attack, which was so yes. offbeat and weird. And you're like, where is this going? When I was first watching, it's like, where is this? is this going and i think the, i, I kind of like the payoff it wasn't one of my favorites but i think just the the premise just that kind of shows like just the weird unique mind uh, of adam mckay and will ferrell no and i think um this kind of shows why snl has been so important for you know we're going on close to almost 50 years on tv which is we know that especially as the show is going on it has to kind of hit middle america it's, you know, got this big thing. It has to hit the big topical, what everyone in the nation's talking about. But if you're an absurd alternative comedy fan, you still can get that too from this show. Mm-hmm. And Adam McKay kind of has shown the best of both worlds in his time at SNL of being able to hit middle America as the head writer. But for those like alternative comedy fans, these shorts really like nail it too. Yeah, absolutely. And Adam has said that doing these shorts said that that's how he learned how to direct. So, yeah. so they're obviously very influential for him. So, Jeremy, you were probably around middle school, high school mm-hmm. aged when Adam McKay's movies started to get really popular. So, what did like Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, like what did those movies kind of mean to you at that sort of formative age there? They they were between I look at it from two thousand on the the guys you were looking at there was two guys who were like establishing comedy for all of us and that's Judd Apatow and that's Adam McKay you know who were like behind the scenes and I think they were just kind of going neck for neck step stride and stride of like creating these comedies that define a generation in a way and honestly maybe the last true for comedy movies. The last true like era of that yeah. were what Apatow and McKay did. And Adam McKay, you know, Anchorman really just like, I think that was something that really rocked everyone when it came out. And that was a movie, like we you said earlier, viral before viral. Everyone was talking about Anchorman when that came out. And the lines, I mean, 20 years later, people could still nail those lines. I love Desk. Brick, are you just looking at things in the office and saying that you love them? I love lamp. Do you really love the lamp, or are you just saying it because you saw it? I love lamp. I love lamp. I just think when you have those movies like Anchorman and Talladega Nights, and in it, he's what people, I think, maybe realize now, he's doing what Thomas and I have been saying the whole time. Or, you know, Anchorman, he's poking at, you know, hey, this, this hairpiece... It was on our local television news, and, you know, we listened to him just because he had a telestrator, and he's, you know, really, he's threatened, he's misogynistic, and they're, all these guys are threatened by this woman coming on to the, the news team and making a way for herself, and you look at, like, Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby, he's really, in a way, coming at, you know, the George W. Bush, that Southern culture, like like, rich culture, in a way that he felt put George W. Bush in office again, and he's really attacking it, you know, bigger, better, louder, NASCAR is this, and all those things. So he's kind of coming at it, but in a comedic way, 
And uh, those movies and FunnyOrDie.com really define an era for a lot of people, myself included. Yeah, Funny or Die, again, like some of the original viral videos, that landlord sketch that Will Ferrell and Mad McKay's daughter Pearl yeah, uh, we're in just that that landlord sketches blew up. It had Adam McKay Crazy. said it had like fifty million views or something like really quickly, like after a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in college and that was being passed around. Yeah, yeah I, I remember that. And so, and he took a, McKay as far as his directing uh, took a little pivot after like Anchorman two. So, so his last three have been the the Big Short, Vice, and Don't Look Up, which are a little maybe it's slightly more serious in tone. Still a lot of comedic elements. Uh, but it seems like Adam McKay's voice went away from pure, I think, pure comedy. And he leaned in more into having something to say. The Big Short's probably my favorite of those three. But how, what do you think of that pivot from those more slapstick comedies to like the last three, Big Short, Vice, and Don't Look Up? I, I think it's huge in, in two ways. I think I, I always like, for me, the comics who are... Uh, comedic minds, not just comics, who are constantly evolving and constantly evolving their their humor, their type of humor, and really showcasing what's going on in the world, but also what's going on inside themselves. And I feel like that's what Adam has taken to the next level. He's showing us what's going on in our society and how we're being hoodwinked mm-hmm. more, you know, more and more right in front of our eyes. And like, hey, are you guys not seeing this? But still doing it in a brilliantly funny way, but it's real. And also he's showing us the evolution of him and how he had always, I think, kind of had a little bit of like political and activism in him. But as the, the years have gone on, especially, you know, after SNL, he's been more and more engaged in, you know, social issues from the environment to what's, you know, things like that. So I think it's showing the difference in him. And I always respect, I mean, I say comedic, but any kind of artist who are, who are doing that, I always have appreciation for. Yeah, I respect. I like that he's taking those chances. I like that he's doing that and doing something different. And it might not totally hit the mark always for a lot of people. I know Don't Look Up was a little divisive uh, in some circles on the left and the right, actually. Like, right. That's something that like a lot of people, uh, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, but I like that he at least attempted something like that. The big short really resonated with me quite a bit. Same. I felt, <laughs> and this might be an Adam McKay trick, but I felt I felt a, a little smarter after watching the big short and trying yeah, to explain yeah. it to my wife after I watched it. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, hey, he, he won an Oscar for it, I believe, and uh, and I think he broke down something that was a huge turning point in our society, like you know that that crash in '08. Um, that we're still really feeling the effects of to this day, honestly. But he broke that down in a way where it's like we knew like people got screwed, but it kind of like simplified it for oh, that's how we got screwed, like you know, layman's terms. So I like that, and right. and I think you know, as as you told the listeners, and being a sports history guy, when you have a a partnership, people are always like, well, who uh who gets more credit? Who's the guy they? that we should praise more and we know how great will ferrell is whether on snl and after that i think what i also give adam mckay credit for is i think his run of what he's been able to do in all these mediums film tv podcasting has shown that it was both of them hey he he did great work with will ferrell but he's doing great work outside of will ferrell 
and that, hey, they both were important to each other these past, you know, 25 years. Yeah, and Adam McKay is doing great work as a producer. He's been executive producer on Drunk History, Eastbound and Down, Succession, which might mm-hmm. surprise some people, but he actually, like, it, it wasn't a name only. Like, he he was hands-on as far as casting. Absolutely. To developing the tone of the show. He directed the first, the pilot episode, the first episode. Like, he uh, he had a, a his hands on how Succession came to be which is a show that i absolutely love one of my probably turned into one of my all-time favorite shows by the end of it and also winning time you're a big sports yeah. fan Jeremy. i don't know if you've been keeping up with winning time yes yeah, season two just dropped so yes. uh it, it is very interesting and there's a lot of adam mckay isms if you watch season one but then also season two uh a lot of like comedic liberties that i think certain certain historical sport figures did not like you know, but there's I'm creative fine liberties because I I'm think fine. it makes it more entertaining. If Jerry Absolutely. West, Jerry West is one of the most hilarious TV characters out right now, and if he wasn't yeah. like that in real life, I don't care because it's fun to watch in the show. And part of me is also like, hey, you're getting a resurgence here, Jerry. Yeah, like, you know, right. like so, ride it. And like, and the people who know you know you're not like that. So like, relax a little bit. But uh, exactly. And unfortunately, winning time did cause a fallout between he and Will Ferrell. Which yeah. is we talked about what a great partnership they had over the years, and uh, the story goes that Will Ferrell thought that he had the part of of Doctor Jerry Bus in Winning Time, and I guess maybe McKay had had all but said that. Maybe he did say that to Will Ferrell. John C. Riley ended up getting the part of Doctor Bus, and Will Ferrell didn't take kindly to that. And I'm sure there was other stuff brewing, but I think that was like the straw, the proverbial straw yeah. in this situation. And Will Ferrell essentially told Adam McKay, like, good luck, like have a nice life essentially. And I don't know, man, I like think that's unfortunate just as it's, a comedy fan and seeing their partnership. I think that sucks. It's sad to me because uh, from, from what I gather, yeah, like he wanted McKay has said, like he always wanted John C. Riley. But, like, wasn't sure he could get him, so he told Will Ferrell that. But then John C. Riley was like, I'm open. But John C. Riley said, well, I don't want to upset Will Ferrell. And I think uh, business-wise, it was the right... John C. Riley is perfect for that He's part. Great. So Adam McKay was right, but there is a way to do things properly. And the way it's seen... I think Adam McKay has acknowledged it. Like He, he wishes he would have done it better and letting Will Ferrell know he kind of just did it. And that's how Will Ferrell found out. And it's a shame because like you said, uh, it's a partnership that has brought for over 25 years, some of the best comedies on TV and movies that a generation will always have. And for it to end like that, where it seemed like I, I'm not going to say they were best of friends, but it seemed like it wasn't just a good working relationship. It seemed like they were very tight as friends too. Yeah. So it's always sad to see that happen. Yeah, hopefully they could patch things up um, just on a personal level for them. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure they're missing. I'm sure Will Ferrell misses his friend in in, in some way. I'm, I mean, I've had falling out, uh, fallings out with friends in the past, and it's you know part of you still misses like their company and camaraderie. Oh, absolutely, same here. All of that so, and sometimes it comes down to that. Like it comes down to just how we communicate, and we we overthink it. But it's like, man, if you just would have. It's not what you did, but it's how you did it. If you just would have did it the right way, maybe it's, it still would have been okay. But yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, definitely. 
All right, Jeremy. So we've hit the moment of truth. You know how I like to end these episodes, give you my guest the last words. So, Mr. Jeremy Dove, why do you think SNL Hall of Fame voters should consider casting a vote for Adam McKay? All right. Well, thank you, Thomas. This was fun as always, man. And I look at it like this. We talked about, you know, if you listen to this episode, the impactful sketches, the impactful role that Adam McKay was a part of. And it wasn't just him, but he was a big part in really helping to bring Saturday Night Live out of maybe its most tumultuous time in a way that for me to hear Lorne Michaels say that speaks volumes of that was the toughest time he had as executive producer of the show. And for him to put trust in Adam McKay and to create these iconic sketches that we still look at generations from now, we're still they're still being used on the show. That right there to me is huge. But I also have to look at in the show's history, you've had these great writer cast member combos that form well from I look at Alan Zweibel and Gilda Radner. You know, I look at from with Eddie Murphy and he had, you know, David Sheffield and Barry Blaustein and they went on to do great work on SNL and after, you know, I can look at Norm MacDonald and Jim Downey, but to me also Adam McKay and Will Ferrell for what they did on SNL is right up there. And I believe Adam McKay and maybe not just him alone, but the way we talk about Will Ferrell as that great utility guy and that great guy we can fit in everywhere of all the writers, Adam McKay, to me, highlighted that about Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell was great with, you know, the cheerleader sketch and, you know, lover, all those, like, outrageous kind of stuff. But the way that he was able to be the everyman kind of guy, I feel like no writer hit that better than Adam McKay. And to me, he highlighted a big skill in possibly a top three, top four all-time SNL cast member. So you combo that as well. I think it's a slam dunk that Adam McKay should be in the SNL Hall of Fame. Just, you know, based on we have to give writers more props when it comes to the Hall of Fame. And I think Adam McKay is one of those guys where we can pinpoint and see his importance to the show and the show's history. So people, if you're listening, please vote for Adam McKay. Yeah, Hey, Lonely Island got in and Thomas and I just talked about you know, would there be a lonely island without Adam McKay? Maybe, maybe not. Little Lauren was able to see what Adam McKay did with these and maybe put trust into, oh, there's this YouTube thing. I'll give Lonely Island a try to kind of spread their wings. And how big was that for a lot of people? So please get out there, vote for Adam McKay. Hey, that ended suddenly, didn't it? But it was different. <laughs> it was different music than I normally play. Uh, so there's that. Hey, Dare Me Dove. Great guy, right? Lots to say about Adam McKay. So I hope you had a paper and pencil with you and you wrote it all down because there's a lot to catch up on. Adam McKay, does he belong in the SNL Hall of Fame? Hmm, I don't know. 
I think ultimately he ends up there. I don't think he's the first ballot Hall of Famer by dint of the fact that he's a writer. And we seem to punish the writers. Uh, I don't know why that is. But uh, if you're a cast member, you're almost a lock. But uh, Adam McKay, you know? I think it's like Thomas said, maybe more famous for his work outside of SNL at this point. It's been a long time. But let's check out a sketch that solidifies him among the greats. This is one of my favorite sketches of all time, and I don't know how Thomas got the whole version of it because whenever I find it, it's it's got cut-ins from Lorne Michaels and things like that. So this is great. This is uh, Neil Diamond from Store, uh, VH1 Storytellers, and it's Farrell playing Diamond, and uh, John Goodman is the guest host. He plays a bassist in diamond's band and um this is uh an exercise in let's push as far to the line as we can go and see what happens but um let's give it a listen this is vh1 storytellers special guest written by adam mckay thank you thank you hello hello everyone They told me before I came on the show that I was supposed to tell the stories behind my most popular songs and then play them. I said, cool, let's do it. But Gary over here was a little shy. Uh, Come on, Neil, give me a break, man. (laughs) This first song... Thank you. Thank you. That, of course, Sweet Caroline... I wrote that song after a big show at the Forum. Gary and I had been drinking pretty heavily, and we were driving. I can't believe you're going to tell this story. (laughs) Yeah, well, we were driving down this dark road, and I hit a kid. So we got out, and sure enough, he was dead. So we just took off pretty fast. And two hours later, I wrote Sweet Caroline. Sweet Caroline. Times never seem so good. Thank you. Thank you. It gets crazy on the road and awful lonely. That's why I love pornography. (laughs) This next song is all about my love of hardcore, barely legal porno. Gary knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, he likes that really weird porno you can't send through the mail. I'll be honest. It ain't cool. It creeps out the whole band. Well, my bizarre, insatiable, and downright dangerous sexual habits led me to write this song. Oh, crackling rose, get on board. We're gonna ride till there ain't no more to go. Taking it slow. Let's all do the best we can. I can turn invisible if I really try hard. I, I can't quite remember how that one goes. I, I gotta admit, I'm a little high. <laughs> Kenny over here gave me some dynamite pills. Hey, come on, man. Hey, cool out. Just everyone cool out. Cool out! <laughs> This next song you all might like. Few people know that I'm fueled creatively by my massive hatred of immigrants. 
Gary and I have gone on for hours about how much we hate foreigners. Right, Gary? Leave me out of this, man. No, I will leave you in. <laughs> well, my love of this great and beautiful nation and my hatred of all people with dark skin led me to write this. <laughs> on the boats and on the planes, they're coming to America. Never looking back again. Just do the best you can. You hate your keyboard player because he's black. Never had the courage to tell him so. Man, you're a wreck. Oh, come on. I think I tore some stitches. Come on, Gary, help me out. No, that's enough, Neil, man. You got to chill out. I'll smack you in the mouth. I'm Neil Diamond. Okay, that's it. I'm gone. That's it. Wait. This next song I wrote after I killed a drifter to get an erection. <laughs> Forever in blue jeans. Where you going? Do the best you can. Reach for the stars like a champion. John Elway finally won. Ah! I put clown makeup on my penis. Blue jeans. Damn, ah, Come on, it's over. Let's go, buddy. Oh, my heart. My, my ass. My heart and ass hurt. <laughs> this has been VH1 Storytime. All right, that was Storytellers, and uh, again, one of my favorite sketches of all time. I just think it's so surprising. Uh, it's a little mean, and I don't know that it uh, carries over into today's era as 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 it as it might have um, because of the mean spirit. But it's not punching down, you know. It's it's not really punching down. It's 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 surprising and shocking and. There's something, you know, wonderful about that with comedy sometimes. And uh, and Farrell just plays the hell out of it. And I love John Goodman's voice. Ah, come on, Gary. Come on, Neil. That's just great. He plays Gary. I should have known that because my name is Gary, even though I go by JD. It makes no sense. Well, that's what we've got for you this week here in the SNL Hall of Fame. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Next week, we will be back, and we will have another nominee for you, and it's going to be a, a blast. Uh, I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure you're going to have just a, a bang-up time, a wonderful time, as we prepare you to celebrate the, um, the wonder and the awe, the virtue that is Justin Timberlake. And he will be nominated by our friend, John Schneider. So tune in next week to hear John Schneider talk about Justin Timberlake with Thomas Senna. Matt's Minutia Minute will be here. Jeremy Dove, unfortunately, will not be here. He's not here every week. It's a shame. Uh, we could use him, uh, I'm sure. We could we could think of a segment. Maybe maybe my segment. Maybe, maybe he would be good at vamping. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but we shall see. That's what I got for you. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Be safe. And uh, do me a favor. As you're walking out of the building today, when you walk past the weekend update exhibit, there's a light switch on the wall. Turn it off because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed.
Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next week. and such.